Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. First Corinthians chapter 3, the church and its leaders. Uh, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food. For you were not ready, for, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? But what after all is Apollos, or, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one who already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built of each person, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, um, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Thank you. Thanks, Shruti. That's great. Let me pray, and uh, if you have a Bible, do keep it open as we go through the passage. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We pray that it would be living and active in our lives now as we receive it, and in our lives this week as we chew over it and apply it uh, in the details of Monday through Saturday. In Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up isn't easy, is it? Um, It means taking on responsibility and putting childish ways behind us. Growing up means we have to allow someone else to instruct us and to teach us. And one of the reasons growing up can be hard is so often we're proud and we don't think we need instructing. Uh, We pretend that we've got it all sorted and we are all grown up. We think we're so wise, don't we? That's one of the big problems with growing up is admitting we're not so wise. Well, that's what is going on in the book of Corinthians. And in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, you think you're so wise, don't you, Corinthians? But you actually need to grow up. He calls them infants 
and not adults in verses 1 to 2. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You know a person's age, well, one of the ways, by their diet. If someone is on breast milk or the glorious mushy broccoli, then you know that they are less than 18 months old and have not moved on to solid foods. Paul says, I'm still giving you Corinthians milk because you are not very wise. You haven't grown up. You appear so clever, but really you are babies. You should have grown up by now. So the Corinthians thought they were wise, but were actually mere infants, not adults. And the reason, verse 3 and 4, is because they're worldly, not spiritual. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere, are we, are you not mere human beings? Just as a baby is revealed by the diet they have, they're on milk, so one of us is revealed in terms of our maturity by whether we are full of quarrel, quarreling and jealousy. Paul says, you're so worldly, the Corinthians, because it's revealed by your jealousy and your quarreling. And you remember the problem we encountered in, in chapter 1, that the Corinthians had gone, well, I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, and I follow Cephas, Peter. And, and they divided into different factions, and underneath those factions was a human pride. You know, we want to have this celebrity leader or whatever else was going on. So someone who is constantly quarreling and jealous or someone who always, always got relational friction in their life is a proud person. Because their pride means that everyone else seems to be a competitor. Someone to beat or to prove themselves better than, someone to outdo. And that's why proud people not only constantly have relational tension in their lives, but are insecure people. Because everyone they come across they're in competition with, and often they come across people that are better than them. And they can't, they're then unnecessarily intimidated by that because proud people are always competing and there's jealousy and there's quarreling. That was the problem in the church of Corinth. They were just as proud as the city in which they lived. As we've said every week, too much was Corinth was in them and not enough of Christ. Paul says you're worldly, you're mere infants. He says... It's time to grow up. It's time to mature. It's time to put your childish, worldly ways behind you and take some solid food to be a little bit more humble, to receive some instruction. And that's exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 3. He gives him a three-course meal. He says, it's time to grow up after milk. Let me give you some solid food. And I want to give you solid food into regards, what is the church? What are church leaders? How are we to understand our role in the church and God's role in the church? It's time for the Corinthians to grow up in a deeper understanding of what the church is. Maybe it's time for us to grow up as Christ City Church, a little bit deeper in our understanding of what the church is, to put some childish ways behind us that mean we're always in relational tension and to mature, maybe. Paul gives three metaphors, three different bits of meat for the three courses in his meal. The first one in verses five to seven is that the church is God's field, 
that God grows. Paul, like Jesus, turns to agriculture to explain his points. Jesus had said, famously talking about the kingdom of God, it's like a farmer who goes out and sows seed and it lands in a field in various soils. Well, look at what Paul does in verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants to whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God has made it grow. So there are three main tasks in a field. Task number one is to plant the seed. Task number two is to go and water that seed, causing it to sprout. Uh, and that's the growing aspect of uh, harv- uh, that brings the harvest. There's sowing, there's irrigation, and there's growth. So Paul says, well, I planted and you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. He went and sowed the gospel seed. Paulus then comes in and does some discipleship, and he, he, he sows some more seed, but God makes it grow. In an elitist Roman colony that despises manual labor, Paul designates both Apollos and himself as gardeners with very basic duties, planting and watering. Not much skill is required. Anyone can plant, anyone can water. You don't need a PhD. You just go and do a bit of planting and a bit of watering. It's, not, it's very straightforward. What is really remarkable about the garden and the fields is this mysterious third stage. Not who planted, not who watered, but that every year, about this time of year, everything starts to grow. And why does it grow? Well, no human can make it grow. Only God can make everything grow in our gardens. So he goes in verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their purpose. For we are God's fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So what, you remember, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I... He says, ah, church leaders, I mean, they're not that big, are they? They're not that impressive. They do a bit of planting, a bit of watering. Who's doing the really important work? Who's doing the important work? That is God. He makes things grow. And he actually goes on to say, so he's downplaying the role of Paul and Cephas and Apollos. And, oh, look, we're just nothing. He says, we're just servants. And he's, he's playing up the role of the congregation and says, ha, huh, but you are a fellow worker in the field too. So he's downplaying the role of the leaders and playing up the role of everyone in the congregation. If we as the church put too much stock by human leaders, we have such a misunderstanding of how crops grow and how Christians grow. God is the source of all growth. So we must not give glory to ourselves or leaders or fellow workers, but God alone, it's his field and his work, and we get the privilege of joining in. But you see the flip side, as he downplays the role of human leaders and plays up the role of the congregation, he's saying, I want the congregation to have more ownership. It's not all about the leaders, it's about the congregation. They too are God's fellow workers, they too are God's field, he says. They too are partners in the great task of growing a beautiful harvest. To change the analogy, the church is like a sports team. A sports team needs a captain, for sure. But on the pitch, everyone's a co-player. Everyone has to rise up and play. You can't go where the captain's on the pit. Everyone has to play. Because if you don't play, you can't just go where the captain's doing all the work. 
So everyone is a full-time gospel worker. Everyone is, whether you're paid to do it or not paid to do it, whether your normal job is in the home or in the work or at university, whether you teach at the front or you serve behind the scenes, everyone is a gospel worker. We're all God's co-workers, it says. What after all is Steve Vaughan and Matthew Baskin? Ah, you, knew, you knew it anyway, not very much, right? That's the point. Three bits of solid uh, food to chew on. The first course, the church is God's field, that God grows, and everyone has a part to play, not just the leaders. Secondly, God's building, the church is God's building, that God will test, verses 10 to 14, by uh, the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. So Paul started the church in the sense of he planted the seed and then Apollos came in and now others are coming in. He moves from the organic field to the inorganic building, from nature to construction. The church is not just a field, it's a building. And you have to get the foundation right. And Paul says, well, I got the foundation right. This building isn't got a bad foundation because I preached, what does he say in chapter 1? Christ and him crucified. That's the foundation. And as, people, as Paul preached the gospel, people became Christians on the right foundation. So his point is the only community in this world that can be counted as a church is one that has its foundations in Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can't lay another foundation and say it's a church. So if someone starts teaching another doctrine, well, it might be a community, but it's not a church, according to Paul. Verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you see? It's not just the one that started, Paul. He laid the foundation. It's what comes after. You then have to build on it. Build on someone else's work. Verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation the one that Paul had laid, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, verse 13, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So Paul says you can build in the church with valuable and durable materials like gold and silver and costly stone and if put through fire, those materials survive. Or you can build with cheap combustible materials, wood, hay, and straw, which when put through fire, are consumed. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the day of judgment, a day that will be marked by fire, when everything will be revealed for how durable or undurable it is. The quality will be exposed and tested. It's an awesome thought that everything one day will be revealed as durable or not. If the church is built on worldly wisdom rather than Christ crucified, it will not survive that day. Paul's concern is to say, your church is not whether it looks good, it sounds good, it draws a crowd, it's popular, because all those things on the day of judgment will be exposed by fire. One foundation, Christ crucified, will last on that final day. What will be the result? Well, verse 14, he says, the positive aspects of, that, of the day of fire. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the builders, you and I, the, the co-laborers in the field, have, have built with the foundation of the scriptures and Christ crucified, then there'll be fruit of our labors. It won't all be in vain and we'll have a reward. But verse 15 puts the negative side of the testing 
If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Judgment day will expose faulty building. It will be burned up and the builder will not lose their salvation. God will have mercy. The leader will be saved by the skin of their teeth. One escaping through flames purely by the mercy of God. But they'll have no reward. Nothing to show for their work. What a waste. Building the church on worldly wisdom. What a waste on that final day. It's like the story of the three little pigs. Some must be built with straw, some with wood, and some with bricks. And when the time of judgment comes, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down and the quality of the building will be revealed. So what does Paul say in verse 10? But each one should build with what? Care. Ah, this is God's building. Don't start just being shoddy with your building. Build with care. Listen to what God says in the scriptures about how the church is built. And in chapter 4, verse 5, he goes on in the next chapter to say, what will happen on Judgment Day most of all is our motivation for building will be exposed. Were we motivated by God and his glory? Did the builder build for their own name and to their own ego and to leave a legacy of their greatness? Or was the builder happy to lead a very quiet, cross-centered life of humility, invisibility, weakness in the service of others. Judgment Day exposes our motivations. As the lead pastor of this church, it's a sober thought. My motivations will be judged on that final day. So what's the application for Christ City Church? We want to be relevant, sure. We want to be contemporary, sure. We want to be updated and engaging with our culture, sure but never at the expense of the right foundation and the right building of Christ crucified from the scriptures. Even if it makes us unpopular, even if people reject us, even if we have to lose some friends, we don't want those things. But what does Paul say to another church? We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. We're not looking for praise from people, not from you, nor from anyone else. Our aim is not to alienate or put people off. Of course, we accept people, whatever their starting place. But we must never accommodate to the wishes of our own desires or of the culture around us. Others will be blown here and there, forever trying to be relevant and never being relevant. But if we reflect, if we build ourselves on God's timeless wisdom, that was last week, chapter 2, we'll not only be stable, but we'll always be relevant because God's word is relevant in every culture. By the way, this speaks rather challengingly into issues of modern church going, of consumer church, where people go to church because it fits their needs. Or maybe go to two or three churches at different points, but never commit to one church. And guess what? Those people are always living on milk, not solid food. They haven't felt the pinch of limitation of being accountable in one church. Or some people say, I don't need the local church. I have fellowship with anyone and everyone. And we never submit to authority or the limitations of commitment and service. And we never feel the frustrations of church community that mature us. And we remain detached and we pick and choose what we opt in and what we opt out of. And guess what? You're on milk, not solid food. Is teaching hard to hear? Welcome to maturity. I'm not giving you milk. I'm giving you some solid food to think about. The church is God's field that God grows. Play down the role of leaders, play up the role of the congregation. 
Secondly, the church is God's building that will be tested and he's going to test our motives. So let's build with Christ, him crucified and his scriptures. Thirdly, the, te- the church is God's temple in which God dwells. Verse 16 and 17, from agriculture to construction to the Old Testament, from organic to inorganic to holy ground. Don't you know, verse 16, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do you see what Paul says there? Don't you know, Corinthians, are you not yet on meat? Don't you know? The problem with Corinthians is they're babies on milk. They don't want to grow up and take responsibility. And they think they know what church is about, and they belong to a church. And every Sunday they go to the church in Corinth, but they don't really know what it is to be the church. Let's see what the Bible says about being the church. When Paul talks about the temple, he's talking about the Old Testament temple and where God dwelled. And actually the word he uses is the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. Don't you know that you are now the holy of holies? He's not talking about an individual Christian. But he'll, he'll do that in chapter 6. Each individual is a place where God dwells. But he says here in chapter 3, God lives within the church community. The church community is now the holy of holies. What an amazing thought. We're the place where God's spirit dwells. If you read the Old Testament and you see where God turns up and is present, it's awesome. Exodus chapter 3, there's a burning bush because God is present and Moses has to take off his sandals and not get too close. In Exodus 20, the burning bush turns into a burning mountain, Mount Sinai. And you can't even get onto that mountain because then you'll die. And the mountain shakes and trembles. In Exodus chapter 40, we learn that only one high priest once a year after sacrificing for his own sins can get into the Holy of Holies. If he does it in any other way, he will die and the community will perish. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Philistines have captured the, the Ark of God's Covenant, which represents his presence. And, but but the, the Israelites have rescued it, and David and his armies have come back with great joy and dancing, and they think God's presence is back amongst us. And then the, ark, the, the, the oxen tr- stumbles, and, and the Ark starts to fall, and a man called Uzzah puts out his hand to touch God's presence, and he's struck dead immediately. It's awesome when God's presence shows up. The undiluted, unmediated presence of God is scary and powerful. It causes mountains to shake. It kills on contact. That is why every time a priest tries to enter once a year on the Day of Atonement, there were so many sacrifices. Until Jesus came as the high priest, as the sacrifice, once for all, to bring us into God's presence without fear of death. Paul says, don't you know You, Corinthians, are the holy of holies. And the undiluted, unmediated presence of God is in your midst. If you would just have a vision of the local church that was a bit bigger, you'd stop all the quarreling and the fighting. And so we need to keep reminding ourselves that this is God's church is the holy of holies. And we look around and we think, really, did that person there? But yeah. These proud, squabbling Corinthians, he says, you're the holy of holies. And to Christ did he show, he says, you're the holy of holies. You're the place where God dwells. If you just knew that, you would start to grow up and treat God's church in the way it should be treated. So much so, he goes on to say in verse 17, 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Our, our gossip in church life, our jealousy, our quarreling, our undermining of others, our negative words spoken about other believers, our turning the cold shoulder on our brothers and sisters. Oh, verse 17 is scary. If you were doing anything to destroy God's church, God might destroy you. The Babylonians came and destroyed the temple of God in 587. Years later, God destroyed that civilization. The Babylonians no longer exist. He judged them. It's a dangerous thing to mess and bring division with God's temple. Tread carefully. You're on holy ground. Don't rush in. Fools rush in. Consider your approach to the local church. It is precious to God. Is this hard teaching to swallow? Welcome to maturity. You're not on milk anymore. You're being given something to grow up. So in summary, the Corinthians are proud and worldly wise. They thought themselves clever, but they were in fact infants, only able to take milk. As a result, there were divisions and factions in the church. So Paul gives three bits of solid food to chew on. And he gives us the same bits of food. The first course said, well, the church is God feels that that God grows. Don't make too much of human leaders. They're just servants. They're not clever or significant. God is doing the important work in the church. And we all have a role. Secondly, the church is God's building that he will test. So don't be concerned with how impressive a church looks in the eyes of the world now. Be more concerned about how it will be revealed on that final day. Let's be careful how we build, not with the latest ideas, not because we want to fit in with our culture, but with biblical truth that will bring us to maturity. Thirdly, the the church is God's temple. So take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. Treat it carefully. Quarrels, divisions, relational friction are not insignificant things. It can cause combustion and might destroy a church. And if you played your part in that destruction, God says God might destroy you. So what's Paul's final exhortation to the Corinthians to grow up? What he gives to? He says... Stop trying to impress people, verse 19 or verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. If you want to fit in with our culture, you'll always be a fool. If you're willing to be a fool in the eyes of the world, you become wise. You want to mature or do you want to stay as a baby? You want to keep impressing people or do you want to grow up in God? Give up our pretensions of greatness and settle for weakness and foolishness. That is taking up our cross as a Christian. We'll be fools in the eyes of the world, but we'll become wise as God wants us to be. Stop trying to impress people, he says to the Corinthians. And then he says, understand your great inheritance. Verse 21 to 23. The Corinthians are like little boastful proud children trying to grab the best toys and the best sweets before they go because they don't know what is already theirs. They feel they have to grab it because they're not aware of the riches they have. Verse 21. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you're of Christ, and Christ is of God. 
When we think our inheritance as Christians is small and insignificant, we squabble like toddlers to make sure we have everything we want in this earth now. But when we lift our eyes and consider what that verse just said, all things are ours. And if God did not withhold his own son, Paul says in Romans 8, how much more will he not give us all things? When you know how great your inheritance in Christ will one day be, you give up your silly tribal divisions or your squabbling. And specifically, the church does not belong to Christian leaders. It says here, the Christian leaders belong to the church. Paul never says, this is my church, even though he's the founding apostle. This is God's church. So even though Leanne and I came many years ago and planted the church here, and now I lead it as an elder with Maffey and with a leadership team, this is God's church. Let's play down the role of the leaders. Let's play up the role of one another. And let's remember God does the really important stuff. So we've been given some solid food this morning, friends, to chew on regards to the local church. The Holy Spirit wants us to grow up. We all have a part to play in it as God's fellow workers. Whether full-time gospel ministers who are paid to do it or unpaid people that have other jobs, we're all full-time gospel ministers. We must build with care because God will expose our motives and our labor will be revealed on that final day. Let's not be careless with God's church. We're all God's temple. God is here in our midst. Even when it just seems so ordinary and mundane, God, this is precious. This is sacred ground. This is eternal. So let's stop trying to impress people and trying to fit in with our worlds. Give up boasting, because that just leads to quarrels. Give up your pride, that leads to divisions. Instead, let's remember our great inheritance that we will one day receive in Christ. All things are ours. We don't need to squabble now, because everything is coming our way. All things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, and you're of Christ, and Christ is of God. And so we come now to take the bread and the wine. As I was reflecting on this, it's quite a moving thought, isn't it? When we take the bread and wine, we remember the body of Christ that was broken on the cross for us. And we think about that forgiveness of sins and a fresh start and being filled with the Spirit. And we will remember that today as we come forward. And you can take a moment to confess any sin of pride or any way you've created division or have relational friction because of your pride. Take a moment and receive forgiveness afresh as you take the bread and the wine. So we remember the body broken on the cross. But at communion, we remember the body gathered. That's us. That's another metaphor of the church, isn't it? Christ doesn't have a physical body on earth. He has a spiritual one. That is you and I. He carried our sin into the Holy of Holies. He encountered the presence of God and was killed, that we might become the temple the presence of God on earth. So as you come forward, remember Christ's body broken and remember Christ's body gathered. And then in the week, remember the body scattered to be co-laborers in the field in whatever task God has called you to this week. The bread and the wine, Neil will explain more about in a moment, but this is for those that call themselves followers of Jesus. So while Leanne plays our next song, which is a song all about the mercy of God, when we hear teaching like this, we can feel convicted. Come afresh to the cross. Sing this wonderful song about the mercy of God. And then come forward, collect the bread and the wine, come back to your seats, and Neil will direct us. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to stay in your seats and consider if you'd like to do that today. Let me pray, and then over to Leanne. Why don't you stand with me, please, as we...
move into our last part of the service. Oh, Father, we probably see ourselves very much like the Corinthians. We just want to stay immature. We don't want to take some of the hard stuff of your word. We don't like some of the solid food you give us to chew on. And our pride and the ways we cause problems are revealed. And so as we come to your cross now and remember your body broken and your blood poured out, we thank you for your mercy is more. Even though our sin is great, your mercy is more. And as we consider today what it is to be your body gathered, your temple, your fields, the building that you are building, may we treat it as carefully and may we play our part in it and may we remember how precious it is to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.